0: I have a very curious 15-year-old uh, about to turn 16. She's always liked to know the truth and the details. And when she had heard that many of Disney's fairy tales were actually rewritten and kind of Disney-ized, she decided to pick up um, Grimm's fairy tales and get the actual version of these fairy tales that we have enjoyed as children. And Grimm is a perfect word for Grimm's fairy tales. So Rapunzel is a very interesting. You know, we just got this new Disney Tangled version out, and it is quite Disneyized, I would call call it. Rapunzel, the true story is is a prince hearing a woman singing from her tower, and amazed and in awe of her beautiful voice, he climbs the tower to discover her beauty and has to have her for himself. So he leaves and he plans to come back and get her. Well, her wicked uh, stepmother finds out about this and so she cuts Rapunzel's hair off sends her to the desert to waste away and then uses Rapunzel's hair to drop down when the prince comes to call on her and when he climbs the hair she sees he sees the wicked mother instead of Rapunzel and she says your singing bird Rapunzel has been caught by a cat who is going to scratch her eyes out and make her blind and so will you be blind and so in his dismay he leaps from the tower only to have his eyes impaled by thorns and to be blinded he wanders through the desert blind not knowing where he's going and he eventually hears his singing bird with her twins where the twins came from we don't know something was happening in that tower before he came back (laughs) and her tears actually heal, heal his blindness a little bit of a happy ending there well, Snow White, our next one, Snow White, <clears throat> very interesting. The wicked, vain stepmother actually tries to kill Snow White three times. Talk about gruesome details. First, lace. She comes to trade lace, and she wraps lace around Snow White and chokes her. Well, the dwarfs come in in time to, to unwrap her and to resuscitate her. Second time, the witch, poses de- as a beggar woman, sells her a comb for her beautiful hair. Well, the comb is poisonous. So she falls into a, almost dead, and then the dwarfs come in and resuscitate her. Well, the third time is the apple, and the dwarfs cannot resuscitate her, but they will not put her in the ground dead. They, she's too beautiful for the dirt. So they create a glass coffin for her, and they put her on a hill. Well, of course, a king's son comes, sees the beautiful coffin, so enamored with her beauty, he wants her even though she's dead. That's kind of interesting in of itself. <laughs> he wants to gaze at a dead woman. Uh, the guy needs therapy. Anyway... He promises he'll take care of the divorce if they'll just let him have the glass coffin. So he takes the glass coffin, and the coachman hit a bump on the way to the castle, and up from her throat comes a piece of apple. And she's alive. Okay, the most gruesome of the three is Cinderella, though. This is disgusting for any of you who have read this. When the stepsisters try to fit the golden slipper on... One stepsister cuts off her toes to fit into the, I mean, takes a knife and cuts off her toes. The prince is deceived. He's taking her to the castle until he sees blood pouring out of the golden slipper. Takes her back. Tries the next sister. She cuts off her heel, thinking, well, maybe the heel will work. So they're driving to the castle on their little coach, and he sees blood pouring out of the golden slipper again. Goes back. Make sure there isn't another maiden and then has Cinderella. Well what's interesting is the stepsisters hoping they can get into good graces during the wedding processional of Cinderella and the Prince come to the come to the processional. Pigeons gouge out their eyes. So they're blinded for the rest of their life for their wickedness. Grimm's fairy tales. They're pretty grim. And as I was talking to one woman this morning, she was telling me that part of the reason is, is that the Germans actually use these to teach children lessons. <laughs> so maybe we ought to all go ahead and give our kids nightmares. We don't like that. We kind of like the Disney version, don't we? We don't like Nehemiah 13. We want it to end at 12. We want it to end with with um, happily ever after. And they all continue to honor the house of the Lord. We want a Disney ending. In response to the repentance, God has rescued his people from captivity. Shouldn't there be a Disney ending? He has united them as his beloved people. He's used them to restore his holy city, his temple, and his walls that were broken down and the gates that were destroyed by fire. In just 52 days, he rebuilds this wall through the hands of his people. And he just confounds the enemies. I mean, they fall on their self-esteem, right? And then he washes them by his word, reviving their bodies, their souls, and their spirit. In response, they commit to observe all his laws and to keep his commandments. They promise to not neglect his house. And we saw this great time of pausing and purifying and participating in celebration, In fact, the joy was so strong, it was heard from far away. With such restoration, such rebuilding, such revival, why doesn't it end at 12? Wouldn't it be great? In fact, maybe that's why some people left between, (laughs) aren't here this morning. They want it to end. After such a solid dedication to not neglect the house of the Lord, why are they neglecting the house of their God? I think there's something in here, just as Grimm's fairy tales are intended to teach a lesson with the gruesome details, we have a lesson here. The people of God were naive, they were ignorant, they were lazy about the reality that things never stay the same. Have you noticed this about life? Things don't stay the same. Life is constantly moving. There are three forces at work all around us right now, inhabiting every moment around us, every space of this earth. It is our restlessness. Our restless hearts are constantly moving. Even though we try to resist change, we change. It is the enemy of our soul who is at work, trying to undo the work of God, which is also at work, transforming us into his image. So we have three things happening all the time around us, three movements, and we cannot stay static. What is restored, what is rebuilt, what is revived will not stay that way unless we are proactive, intentional about moving forward. C.S. Lewis puts it this way, there is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. Oh, Lord Jesus, help us see this reality in our life. Israel was either too casual or prideful about this reality. And their restlessness, their restless nature that is caught between these two forces of God moving them into his image and Satan countermoving to move them backwards, away from his image, to disqualify them, to keep them from making God's name famous. So after about a 10-year absence, Nehemiah comes back and finds that Israel has broken her vows to him. Israel is neglecting the house of God. And I think 13 uh, verses 4 and 5 are really key, pivotal, key verse to understanding what's happened. It says, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offerings, the frankincense, the vessels, the tithes, the grain, the wine, the oil. Eliashib, appointed by Nehemiah, a priest, was appointed to be the gatekeeper of the sacred chambers of the temple. And he allows Israel's enemy, Tobiah, to move right into the nerve center, the hub of the community. Now Tobiah as you found in your study is related to Eliashib by marriage and Tobiah as we've seen all through Nehemiah has incredible audacity. He does not just move a toe into the temple. No, he brings a U-haul. And his and his all of his belongings inhabit the sacred places of the temple. He inhabits the nerve center of the community, incredible influence, corruption. Ladies, we have a gatekeeper That cannot always be trusted. Our gatekeepers are flesh. Now with our flesh we can glorify God. You know the tongue can glorify God or curse. With our bodies we can present them as a holy and living sacrifice. But we also have a flesh that if it's unchecked it will let our relative, sin nature, move on in. And take what God has rebuilt, restored and revived. And overpower it with the things of sin. If our flesh does not submit to the spirit of God that indwells the temple that we are, that big toe of sin nature will move on in and bring everything with it. And we will no longer make God's name famous. If we are naive, if we're ignorant, if we're casual about this gatekeeper, our flesh, we will, like Israel, compromise the community of God. We will compromise our commitments to God. What is restored, what is rebuilt, what is revived will not stay that way unless we're proactive. We are always moving. Satan is always moving. Thank you, Lord. You are always moving. Which direction will we move as we move away from this study of sister to sister and from Nehemiah? I think we've got some great lessons to see about how crucial this is. First, we see this Keeping of community that's being compromised. On that day, Nehemiah 13one through 3, on that day they, Israel, read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam instead to curse them. Yet our God returned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent." Again, we see that they were moving away from keeping community because they weren't constantly moving forward in keeping community. And so the Moabites and the Ammonites are now involved in the assembly of God, which means they're being intimate, they're in leadership, they have influence. It doesn't mean that they're like equated to our churches, that they're visitors. It means that they're in a place of influence and intimacy. And God is very clear, no, these Moabites and these Ammonites are the enemies of God. In their unconverted nature, they are your enemies. Remember what they did to you. Not only did they not meet you with expected desert hospitality, they went further. They tried to curse you. I have protected you by turning their curse into a blessing. Why are you letting them into the intimate life of worship? Unconverted outsiders, intimately brought into our lives, will corrupt our worship of God. Their lives, their languages brought in will harm us. And it confuses them when we bring them in. It confuses them into thinking that they are part of the assembly of God when they are not. We need to be very clear about what worship is, about what the intimate fellowship of the family of God is. Listen to what John Piper says. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exist because worship doesn't. Those who worship this missionary God will inevitably inevitably feel a compulsion to be involved in his mission in the world. In other words, Piper is saying that that the, the church exists to worship God. And the reason we have missions, the reason we are missional and care about the lost, is because they're not worshiping God yet. And that is the point, is that we as worshipers evidence what it looks like to worship So that they see that it's different than what they do. And they want to be drawn into it. And so we then have to protect the intimacy. Again, I'm not saying that we don't allow those who don't know the Lord to be a part of our worship services. Ours are very different. But what this is talking about in the assembly of God is the intimate fellowship of sharing one another's lives. I was... um, talking with a, a woman who was a, a children's director at a, at a church and had left her position. And she was sharing with me why she left her position. And she said one of the reasons was is that the philosophy and the practice of the church had changed. And she had been told to bring in non-believers into the Sunday school classrooms to teach the children. Because this was a new mode of evangelism, is to bring them in and to give them a feel for what it's like and that, that somehow then they'll incorporate themselves. And that's how we'll evangelize. That is not biblical, not Old Testament or New Testament. Paul in Corinthians says that the non-believer should be shocked at what we do. He should be uncomfortable unless God is drawing him in. It is not our goal to use the church to bring people into the intimacy part. It's the goal of the church to worship God in such a way as to make his name famous so that those who are being drawn to him see us, see something different, and are drawn in like we saw with Ruth. God is not a racist. He's a hardest. He does not not push foreigners out. He loves the foreigners. He tells Israel to be kind to the foreigners, to leave food for the foreigners. But he wants the foreigners to remember their foreigners so that they will desire to be worshipers and then be converted by the true worship of the church. We must know this. We must not be naive that if we bring foreigners into the intimate parts of our lives, we will corrupt our worship. Are we to love the non-believer? Of course. Scripture is just complete with all kinds of passages about loving those who don't know him. But we can be a friend to them without having them be intimate with us. We must not ignore the scriptures that say bad company does corrupt good morals. And that a little leaven does ruin the whole lump. I was remembering being in junior high and... This is before I was a believer, but I was really committed to purity. I think I had grown up in a religious background that, in my mind, without ever even discussing it, I was going to be pure when I got married. And I was running with a group of girls who were going a different direction. And I remember the day they sat me down, both girls, and told me that they were sleeping with their boyfriends, you know, as 7th graders, 8th graders. And I remember being so shocked and trying to hide my shock. And this one girl whose house I was at was 8 doors down from mine. And from that little walk from her house to my house, by the time I got to my front door, I had rationalized in my mind that I had been making purity way too big an issue. In eight doors, eight houses, my mind had already gone there. Ladies, I am still a big junior hire and so are you. And when we have too much intimacy with people who are outside the assembly of God, it will corrupt our worship. Our worship will go from being dog worship to cat worship, and then from cat worship to sin. We must be careful about who we share the intimate details of our lives with, that they are people that direct us to worship him, to make his name famous. If not, we will lose our God-given purpose of community to be set apart to make his name famous. Now, as we continue in 13, we find that a much deeper issue was even at stake than foreigners in the assembly, foreigners in the intimate life of Israel. They weren't keeping their commitments. And if we look at our own lives, we will see that our lack of commitments actually lead to bringing in the foreigners into our lives. I also found, Nehemiah 13.10, that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled to their fields. So even before this foreigners, we see that there was a lack of commitment to the work of God, to so the temple being a holy dwelling place. They were being casual about their commitments. These Levites were forced to flee the country because they couldn't do their duties. They weren't supported, so they had to make a living, and they had to go back to their farms. Ladies, when we don't support the work of God in this world, Enemies invade and corruption happens. Our casual approach to community life, serving, giving, has serious implications. God has given every one of you a spiritual gift, more than one, intended to be used for His glory. You are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that He has planned. And when you don't serve, the body of Christ is missing its foot, it's missing its leg, it's missing its spleen. And trouble happens when we don't keep our commitments to have our lives be about the kingdom, there is trouble. There is big trouble. We become anemic in the work of God. I love how Francis Chan puts it. He treasures us, God, and anticipates our departure from this earth to be with him. And we wonder indifferently how much we have to do for him to get by. Ouch. This is what happens when we're not about the work of the kingdom. These gifts that God gives us are for the each other's. The priests were to stand between God and His people and bring reconciliation. The priests were to stand between people and people and bring reconciliation. Some of these offerings were because of sin within the body. And they're fleeing. And there's no more reconciliation between God and His people and people and others. Do you realize, ladies, when we don't use the gifts that God has given us, we are harming his name being famous. I mean, he will make his name famous in spite of us, but we don't get to be a part of it. And we're hurting our brothers and sisters, what they had done to their brothers. I remember moving to Reedley as a young mom. and I had been very involved in junior high and high school ministry. And and then I had had a baby and we moved and all of a sudden I was without ministry. I didn't know what God wanted me to do and alone and at home for the first time. And I must have spent a year, well, it wasn't that long, it was a few months, of just sobbing. And Jeff would come home from work, and I'd make him walk the block with me, and I'd go, me, 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 me. I mean, he saw this woman who had been all about kingdom work turn into the most selfish, self-absorbed, miserable person overnight. Now, we can try to blame it on postpartum, but bottom line is, I wasn't participating in the work that God has for me. And I move, and you move. If we don't participate, if we're not moving towards the work of God in the world, we are then moving towards, we're letting sin self move into the heart. That toe doesn't just come in. The whole body comes in. Praise be to God. I had a Nehemiah in my life. She knocked on the door and she said, we've got a bunch of teen moms in this community that need Jesus. And I hear you like teenagers. Will you come along and help, help us love these teen moms for Jesus' sake? And, you know, I started washing my floor 18 times a day and said, sure, let's go. And all of a sudden, the me, me, me turned into God, God, God. Ladies, I move. That's why I study so much. It's not because I, in of myself, have such a desire to be so close to God. I know my flesh. I know my gatekeeper. And my gatekeeper, if it's not submitted to the Spirit of God, it will be submitted to sin nature. And so I need to study three, four hours a day because I am that sinful. My flesh is that strong. I know my gatekeeper. And if my gatekeeper, my flesh, is going to worship God with its members, I have to submit to being about His work. They were just too casual. When we're not moving towards community, we're moving towards self. We're moving towards self-sufficiency. We'll move from interdependence and with each other to independence. And so no wonder they're breaking the Sabbath. They've moved from interdependence to independence. And when we move from independence, then we have to trust ourselves, don't we? We can no longer take a rest and trust God for the harvest. Trust God to provide our needs. We now have to take back every moment. And we have to provide for ourselves. So, of course, breaking the Sabbath happens. And so this is what Nehemiah sees. And we need to remember, ladies, about this rest and about this trust that the world will continue to trade. We will need to guard our rest. There will be a fight. For those of you that God has impressed Sabbath rest in your hearts, you will not be applauded for it. Merchants will stand outside the gate shaking their little trinkets right at you family members my own family saying can we do this can we do that can we i'm like it's your deal with the lord you take it to the lord but it's amazing how quickly even within our family that we're turning it into lists because things are waiting out the door our sin nature says no 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 you can't rest and trust god you got to fight you got to you got to demand for yourself and so we see this trading so these this fish gate that was to be fishers of men is now a trade gate So instead of fishing for men, instead of being the glory of God and making his name famous by their obvious rest and trust in him, now they're trading. And they become traders with men instead of fishers of men. So, of course, in comes marriage. Marriage is no longer an apologetic, no longer about a godly legacy. And Nehemiah in 23 and 24 sees that the Jews had married women of Ashdod, Amnon, and Moab. And get this, half of their children spoke the languages of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah. So serious is the community of God based in marriage and children. Who do we think we are that we can take it lightly? In fact, he says, Solomon, in all his wisdom, and as much as that God loved him, he blew it. Who do you think you are that you can intermarry and keep God's community clean? Your kids are going to speak foreign languages. They're going to speak the language of the world. They babbled these language, languages and it meant a steady erosion of thinking. No longer expressing themselves and thinking through the word of God. They're now paganized. And it made me think of what Jesus said. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Darkness no longer submitted to the Word of God, no longer knowing the language of Judah, the Word of God. Their eye is dark, and their community is dark. It is amazing to me that a single generation's compromise can undo centuries of what God has done. Do we not see it in our own country? A single generation. How serious is it, ladies, that we gatekeep for the sake of our children, our spiritual children, if we are naive, if we're ignorant, if we're casual about our gatekeeper, this flesh, we will miss our God-given purpose as his community to be set apart to make his name famous. And what I love about this chapter, my favorite part, is that although we move, God, is, God moves too. And he loves his people enough to send Nehemiah back. The Lord disciplines those he loves, doesn't he? Nehemiah 13, 6-9, And I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. This is Nehemiah speaking. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with grain offering and with frankincense. God sends back Nehemiah to keep his people from being a casualty, to keep his people from undoing centuries or at least these, these 20 years of work in, in, a, in a single generation. God sends Nehemiah back with righteous anger. We need to pray, ladies, for Nehemiahs in our life. I talked to a sweet friend yesterday who had a Nehemiah experience, and, and thankfully she's in such a sweet place with the Lord, she embraced it. Tears, struggle, pain. But she said, thank you, Lord. She had someone come into her life and say, this has moved in. Throw it out. Ladies, when we have Nehemiah's in our life, we need to thank them. We need to thank our Lord for loving us so much, to be honest with us. If a community, if we are going to be set apart for him in the midst of a, of a wicked generation and ours is every bit as wicked as Nehemiah's, Sin has to be dealt with immediately and drastically. We don't pet it. We don't play with it. We don't wink at it. We don't ignore it. It must be dealt with immediately and drastically. These chambers that Tobiah had moved into were sacred. It was an act of desecration what Eliashib had done. Nehemiah does not take time to investigate. To empathize, to sympathize, to get the details? No. He, in his righteous anger, and I believe it was righteous anger, he pitches everything and cleanses it. And doesn't just cleanse where Tobiah was in. He cleanses all the chambers, lest even a little bit of his breath went somewhere. What an amazing truth we need to see in that. And again, I believe it's righteous anger. It's a foretaste of what Jesus did. Did he investigate or sympathize or empathize with the money changers? No. He threw their tables over. Francis Chan says, You and I are not allowed to tell God how much he can hate sin. God is the only being who is good. And the standards are set by him. Because God hates sin, he has to punish those guilty of sin. Maybe that's not appealing standard. But to put it bluntly, when you get your own universe, you can make your own standards. This is such a temptation for me to, to go on and on and to, to remind you that, that God's standards are good for you. They are for your blessing. But you know what the bottom line is? It, he's holy. So I don't, shouldn't even have to convince you of that. He deserves our worship. He deserves us to throw it out, to trust Him. I shouldn't have to appeal to your good. That's cat. I should appeal to his glory, which is dog. But the truth is, his good standard is good. And so Nehemiah brings a court case against the officials. When he says, I confronted, this means a court case. Why is the house of God forsaken? Nehemiah brings a court case against the nobles of Judah. What is this evil thing you are doing profaning the Sabbath? And he brings a court case against the people for intermarriage. But I love this part about the Sabbath. He, this is such a cool little side note. It's kind of grim, isn't it? Nehemiah locks the gates on the Sabbath. And when the merchants park outside, he basically says, I'm going to lay a hand on you if you don't knock it off. He's basically is saying, I'm coming out there to beat you up. Do you love that? How serious. He wants the people to trust and to rest in their God. To know that what God has provided is enough to rest in what God has done. He doesn't even want tempters outside the gates. And Nehemiah again brings a court case against the people for intermarriage. I confronted them and I cursed them and I beat some of them and I pulled out their hair. That's pretty grim. I mean, that's up there with cutting off your toes. You know, the stepsisters. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Now we have trouble with this, but we need to understand that this beating was probably this prescribed flogging of Deuteronomy. There was to be a flogging for this because, it, because marriage isn't apologetic, because it is pure. And because God's name is to be made famous. The family is the center with which all of God's work flows. And this pulling out of hair had to do with shame. Baldness was a shame. Nehemiah is saying, this is the shame you have brought upon God's name. You might as well wear it. Nehemiah doesn't just throw out Tobiah and his things. I love that he purifies the storerooms. And he brings back the sacred offerings. Nehemiah knows we move. And he can't just move things out. He's got to move things in. Don't miss that, ladies. Nehemiah doesn't just bring a court case against the officials. He removes them and he replaces them with trustworthy men. And I love that he replaces them with scribes and priests, those who know the law and those who love the people and intercede for the people. Nehemiah doesn't just bring a court case against the desecration of the Sabbath and intermarriage. He gets physical. He locks gates. He threatens physical violence, and he purifies priests to stand guard. Nehemiah's anger is fierce, and it's practical. Sometimes we get angry, but are we practical? Do we do anything about it? I love what J.I. Packer says, If we cannot feel anger at sin, there is something wrong with us. And if we could be more angry at sin, we should be less indulgent towards it. More angry at sin... We should be less indulgent towards this. I was just sharing this with one of my daughters about confessing sin and making things right and sharing with her that when I go to someone and I say to them, I have lied to you or I have gossiped about you. Will you forgive me? That I'm not just getting angry at what I've done. I'm being practical about it. And it helps me lie less. Helps me gossip less. Because if I know I'm going to have to do something about it, there is a protection in it. Israel's chapter 13, I think, is calling us to be real, raw, honest about our own potential 13s. How serious, ladies, are we about gatekeeping? How much do we understand our flesh, our sin nature, and the Spirit of God? How serious do we take it? Do we understand the reality that we are constantly moving? That we're restless? That God is on the move to transform us into His image, but Satan is counterclaiming and he is on the move. Are we serious? Or do we have the pride that these people had and think that we're okay? That we don't need that. Even as New Testament people, we're not static. We might think, well, we've got the Spirit of God, so we're constantly moving in the right direction. No, we still have to fight. I love how Paul puts this in Romans 7. After his conversion, he says this, For I do not know the good I want. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Can anybody relate? Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Counterclaim, claim. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. We know it's good. But I see in my members another war, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Can you relate? Is that not just a beautiful picture of Israel? Or not a beautiful picture, but a clear picture? And it asks us, will we battle our flesh to ensure that sin doesn't move in? our relative, who is our enemy? Will we battle our flesh's temptation to allow intimacy with the world? There's going to be people in the world that are lovely people and people that maybe aren't quite so lovely, but we're drawn to them. And we're going to be tempted to want to bring them into the intimate details of our life to seek their counsel for things that we know we should or should not do. Will we resist that? If we don't, That influence will overpower whatever restoration God has brought to you. And if you see it there now, right now, today, as you look at your life, if you realize that you are being intimate, you're letting the world's influence, its teachings, its people, be intimate in the details of your life,
1: put it out.
0: Replace it with worship, pure worship. Replace it with the languages of the Word, not the languages of the world. Now, am I saying to be mean? Of course not. You understand that. We can be kind. We can be a friend to somebody, but we do not let them into the intimate details of our lives. We do not seek their counsel. We must be so careful. Will we battle our flesh's temptation to allow greed and selfishness to move into our heart? If we do, greed will overpower the rebuilding God has done. And as we look at our heart, has our flesh, our gatekeeper, already let our sin nature move greed and selfishness, self-serving, replace the work God has called you to do for His kingdom? Where are you serving His kingdom? Where are you engaged in the work of God? If you're not, greed will overpower the rebuilding God has done. And if you see it now, throw it out. Confess it. And bring in the community, service, giving, the one another's? Will we battle our flesh's temptation to turn us from fishers of men to traitors with men? Will we act like the non believers, rustling about, fearing seven days a week, thinking it's up to us to save ourselves, it's up to us to provide for ourselves, and lose our God given opportunity to show the world that we can rest because He's enough? Will we fight? against our flesh's desire to let our sin nature replace trust and faith with self-sufficiency. And if we see it now, will we, will we shut it out, lock it out, and appoint faithful men to guard it? Where we see these belongings of our enemy, ladies, we must not take time to investigate, sympathize, empathize, pet it. Talk to it? No. We must bring a court case against our flesh. I have had to bring a court case against my flesh this week for allowing sin nature to bring its toe in, which it's never just its toe. And I need to renew my commitment to appoint faithfulness, which is His Word, and his spirit to guard. Francis Chan says it this way. Christianity is simple. Fight your desires in order to please God. <laughs> if we think we don't have to fight our desires to please God, we are deceived. Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members, is that interesting, the same word, than that your whole body be thrown into hell. Will we have the courage of Paul To say that we're wretched and to cry out, who will deliver me from this body? I was taken on recently for my needing mercy. Those of you who I've written something to, you'll see that I write needing mercy. And I was taken on recently that says, sounds like you're barely hanging on and don't you know you're a princess of the king and you're a new creation? And I get that, ladies. I know that. But I also am very aware of my gatekeeper. I'm also very aware of my sin nature and I am also aware that I am constantly dependent on me submitting by the Spirit my Flesh to the Spirit of God. And that's why I write Needing Mercy. It's a reminder that I am a new creation. A new creation that wants to move away from all that God has done. And that I have to move towards Him. Will we, like Paul say, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thankfully, ladies, as New Testament believers, we get to see that God did move. The most gruesome of historical accounts is not a fairy tale. The most bloody, the most inhumane. We have been given these bloody details of our Savior's sacrificial death to pay the penalty of our chapter 13. Thanks be to God. As Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of death? He immediately says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of spirit of life has set you free in Christ from the law of sin and death. Yes, we've been set free from the penalty. And unlike Israel centuries ago, our very temple has within it God's spirit guaranteeing that He will return one day to rescue us and we will no longer be struggling. We will no longer have to be struggling between the movement away from God and the movement towards God. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Your Spirit guarantees you're coming back for me and I will be delivered from this struggle to worship you freely, purely. But that Spirit also enables us to move, to move towards God and have less and less chapter 13s. Ladies, as we look back on our lives, we should have less and less chapter 13s. If we are watching that gatekeeper, if we are holding it accountable, and the sin nature, and submitting that nature, our flesh, to the Spirit of God instead, we should have less and less. If we're not having less and less, then we have let the big toe and all its belongings move in. We must be proactive. Proactive. I love what Peter says in 2 Peter 1, 3-8. Describes this beautifully. His divine power, Jesus, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. By which, don't miss this ladies, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine Nature, unlike Israel and Nehemiah's time, we can hold our flesh accountable, submit it by the Spirit of God to the Spirit of God, and partake in the divine nature. Do you know that the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is alive in you? Can I hear an amen? We don't have to have 13s. We will, but we don't have to have them near as often as we are. It will require gatekeeping. To have an active, intentional submission to the Spirit of God. This will enable us to make His name famous as we wait for His return. So I love how Peter continues, For this very reason, you have this partaker of His divine nature. Because you have this, submit your flesh to it. Make every effort. Hear the moving in this? Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Your virtue with knowledge, this purity, knowledge. Do we see that in that community? Knowledge with self-control. Self-control with steadfastness. Steadfastness with godliness. Godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, (laughs) they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Oh Lord, I have gone from being discouraged at chapter 13 to embracing it. That the ugly details of 13 have just showed me that I cannot be naive, I cannot be lazy, I cannot be ignorant about my gatekeeper, my flesh, who is always on the move either moving towards the spirit or sin. Father, we thank you that although we are restless and constantly moving, so are you. May we, for your glory, submit our spirit, submit our, have our flesh submit to your spirit, that we might get to be fruitful and effective, making your name famous. In Jesus' name, Amen. Mm-hmm.